duels, death, and chicanery, all cavort with cynical discipline in two stories by the devil's lexicographer. Ambrose Bierce, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. Your monthly donation really helps to create a support flow that we can count on. If you can step up with $5 a month, that really helps us out. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter. You'll get a monthly thank you code for any digital download in the store. It's a great deal and a great feeling. Thank you very much. You can also purchase t-shirts and stuff at our merchandise store. And check out the hybrid audiobook, the audiobook that's embedded in a printed book that I've invented and patented. Links can be found in the episode's details. And for those of you with the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, just enough to wet your whistle. And finally, we are now on the Roku Network. If you have a Roku, which is kind of like a Chromecast, where you plug it into your TV and you can stream media, you can now listen to the Classic Tales through your Roku. We are on the Audiobooks Network channel. A link is also in the show details. Alice in Wonderland is available to stream for free on the Audiobook Network's channel on Roku. And now for something completely different. Ambrose Bierce... It's kind of like Mark Twain without a filter. His gift for writing is undeniable, but his stories always have a biting wit that sometimes can bite pretty deep. For the month of March, we'll be having Moonlight March, where we'll be featuring writers who have a distinct proficiency in the medium of the ghost story. Today, we'll have first a bit of a jocular tale called The City of the Gone Away, followed by the chiller, the middle toe of the right foot. H.P. Lovecraft said of Bierce, Virtually all of Bierce's tales are tales of horror, and whilst many of them treat only of the physical and psychological horrors within nature, a substantial proportion admit the malignly supernatural and form a leading element in America's fund of weird literature. And now, The City of the Gone Away and the Middle Toe of the Right Foot by Ambrose Bierce. The City of the Gone Away by Ambrose Bierce. I was born of poor because honest parents, and until I was 23 years old, never knew the possibilities of happiness latent in another person's coin. At that time, Providence threw me into a deep sleep and revealed to me, in a dream, the folly of labor. Behold, said a vision of a holy hermit, the poverty and squalor of your lot, and listen to the teachings of nature. You rise in the morning from your pallet of straw and go forth in your daily labor in the fields. The flowers nod their heads in friendly salutation as you pass. The lark 
greets you with a burst of song. The early sun sheds his temperate beams upon you, and from the dewy grass you inhale an atmosphere cool and grateful to your lungs. All nature seems to salute you with the joy of a generous servant welcoming a faithful master. You are in harmony with her gentlest mood, and your soul sings within you. You begin your daily task at the plough, hopeful that the noonday will fulfill the promise of the morn, maturing the charms of the landscape and confirming its benediction upon your spirit. You follow the plough until fatigue invokes repose, and seating yourself upon the earth at the end of your furrow, you expect to enjoy in fullness the delights which you did but taste. Alas! The sun has climbed into a brazen sky, and his beams are become a torrent. The flowers have closed their petals, confining their perfume and denying their colors to the eye. Coolness no longer exhales from the grass. The dew has vanished, and the dry surface of the fields represents the fierce heat of the sky. No longer the birds of heaven salute you with melody, but the jay harshly upbraids you from the edge of the copse, unhappy man. All the gentle and healing ministrations of nature are denied you in punishment of your sin. You have broken the first commandment of the natural decalogue. You have labored. Awakening from my dream, I collected my few belongings, bade adieu to my erring parents, and departed out of that land, pausing at the grave of my grandfather, who had been a priest, to take an oath that never again, heaven helping me, would I earn an honest penny. How long I traveled, I know not, but I came at last to a great city by the sea, where I set up as a physician. The name of that place I do not now remember, for such were my activity and renown in my new profession, that the alderman, moved by pressure of public opinion, altered it, and thenceforth the place was known as the City of the Gone Away. It is needless to say that I had no knowledge of medicine, but by securing the service of an eminent forger, I obtained a diploma purporting to have been granted by the royal quackery of charlatanic empiricism at Hudos, which, framed in immortelles and suspended by a bit of crepe to a willow in front of my office, attracted the ailing in great numbers. In connection with my dispensary, I conducted one of the largest undertaking establishments ever known, and as soon as my means permitted, purchased a wide tract of land and made it into a cemetery. I owned also some very profitable marble works on one side of the gateway to the cemetery, and on the other, an extensive flower garden. My mourner's emporium was patronized by the beauty, fashion, and sorrow of the city. In short, I was in a very prosperous way of business, and within a year was able to send for my parents and establish my old father very comfortably, as a receiver of stolen goods, an act which, I confess, was saved from the reproach of filial gratitude only by my exaction of all the profits. 
but the vicissitudes of fortune are avoidable only by practice of the sternest indigence. Human foresight cannot provide against the envy of the gods and the tireless machinations of fate. The widening circle of prosperity grows weaker as it spreads, until the antagonistic forces which it has pushed back are made powerful by compression to resist and finally overwhelm. So great grew the renown of my skill in medicine that patients were brought to me from all the four quarters of the globe, burdensome invalids, whose tardiness in dying was a perpetual grief to their friends, wealthy testators, whose legatees were desirous to come by their own, superfluous children of penitent parents and dependent parents of frugal children, wives of husbands ambitious to remarry, and husbands of wives without standing in the courts of divorce. These and all conceivable classes of the surplus population were conducted to my dispensary in the city of the gone away. They came in incalculable multitudes. Government agents brought me caravans of orphans, paupers, lunatics, and all who had become a public charge. My skill in curing orphanism and pauperism was particularly acknowledged by a grateful parliament. Naturally, all this promoted the public prosperity, for although I got the greater part of the money that strangers expended in the city, the rest went into the channels of trade and I was myself a liberal investor, purchaser and employer, and a patron of the arts and sciences. The city of the gone away grew so rapidly that in a few years it had enclosed my cemetery, despite its own constant growth. In that fact lay the lion that rent me. The alderman declared my cemetery a public evil, and decided to take it from me remove the bodies to another place, and make a park of it. I was to be paid for it, and could easily bribe the appraisers to fix a high price, but for a reason which will appear, the decision gave me little joy. It was in vain that I protested against the sacrilege of disturbing the holy dead, although this was a powerful appeal, for in that land the dead are held in religious veneration. Temples are built in their honor and a separate priesthood maintained at the public expense, whose only duty is performance of memorial services of the most solemn and touching kind. On four days in the year there is a festival of the good, as it is called, when all the people lay by their work or business, and headed by the priests, march in procession through the cemeteries, adorning the graves and praying in the temples, However bad a man's life may be, it is believed that when dead, he enters into a state of eternal and inexpressible happiness. To signify a doubt of this is an offense punishable by death. To deny burial to the dead, or to exhume a buried body, except under sanction of law, by special dispensation and with solemn ceremony, is a crime having no stated penalty because no one has ever had the hardihood to commit it. All these considerations were in my favor. Yet so well assured were the people and their civic officers that my cemetery was injurious to the public health that it was condemned and appraised 
and with terror in my heart, I received three times its value, and began to settle up my affairs with all speed. A week later was the day appointed for the formal inauguration of the ceremony of removing the bodies. The day was fine, and the entire population of the city and surrounding country were present at the imposing religious rites. These were directed by the mortuary priesthood in full canonicals. There was propitiatory sacrifice in the temples of the once, followed by a processional pageant of great splendor, ending at the cemetery. The great mayor, in his robe of state, led the procession. He was armed with a golden spade, and followed by one hundred male and female singers, clad all in white and chanting the hymn to the gone away. Behind these came the minor priesthood of the temples, all the civic authorities, habited in their official apparel, each carrying a living pig as an offering to the gods of the dead. Of the many divisions of the line, the last was formed by the populace, with uncovered heads, sifting dust into their hair in token of humility. In front of the mortuary chapel, in the midst of the necropolis, the supreme priest stood in gorgeous vestments, supported on each hand by a line of bishops and other high dignitaries of his prelacy, all frowning with the utmost austerity. As the great mayor paused in the presence, the minor clergy, the civic authorities, the choir and populace closed in and encompassed the spot. The great mayor, laying his golden spade at the feet of the supreme priest, knelt in silence. "'Why comest thou here, presumptuous mortal?' said the supreme priest in clear, deliberate tones. "'Is it thy unhallowed purpose with this implement to uncover the mysteries of death and break the repose of the good?' The great mayor, still kneeling, drew from his robe a document with portentous seals. "'Behold, O ineffable, thy servant,' having warrant of his people, entreateth at thy holy hands the custody of the good, to the end and purpose that they lie in fitter earth, by consecration duly prepared against their coming. With that he placed in the sacerdotal hands the order of the Council of Aldermen decreeing the removal. Merely touching the parchment, the supreme priest passed it to the head necropolitan at his side, and raising his hands, relaxed the severity of his countenance, and exclaimed, The gods comply! Down the line of prelates on either side, his gesture, look, and words were successively repeated. The great mayor rose to his feet. The choir began a solemn chant, and opportunely a funeral car, drawn by ten white horses with black plumes, rolled in at the gate and made its way through the parting crowd to the grave selected for the occasion, that of a high official whom I had treated for chronic incumbency. The great mayor touched the grave with his golden spade, which he then presented to the supreme priest, and two stalwart diggers with iron ones set vigorously to work. At that moment I was observed to leave the cemetery and the country for a report of the rest of the proceedings, I am indebted to my sainted father, who related it in a letter to me, 
written in jail the night before he had the irreparable misfortune, to take the kink out of a rope. As the workmen proceeded with their excavation, four bishops stationed themselves at the corners of the grave, and in the profound silence of the multitude, broken otherwise only by the harsh grinding sound of spades, repeated continuously one after another, the solemn invocations and responses from the ritual of the disturbed, imploring the blessed brother to forgive. But the blessed brother was not there. Full fathom, too, they mined for him in vain, then gave it up. The priests were visibly disconcerted. The populace was aghast, for that grave was indubitably vacant. After a brief consultation with the supreme priest, the great mayor ordered the workmen to open another grave. The ritual was omitted this time until the coffin should be uncovered. There was no coffin, no body. The cemetery was now a scene of the wildest confusion and dismay. The people shouted and ran hither and thither, gesticulating, clamoring, all talking at once, none listening. Some ran for spades, fire shovels, hoes, sticks, anything. Some brought carpenters' adzes, even chisels from the marble works, and with these inadequate aids set to work upon the first graves they came to. Others fell upon the mounds with their bare hands, scraping away the earth as eagerly as dogs digging for marmots. Before nightfall, the surface of the greater part of the cemetery had been upturned. Every grave had been explored to the bottom, and thousands of men were tearing away at the interspaces with as furious a frenzy as exhaustion would permit. As night came on, torches were lighted, and in the sinister glare, these frantic mortals— looking like a legion of fiends performing some unholy rite, pursued their disappointing work until they had devastated the entire area, but not a body did they find, not even a coffin. The explanation is exceedingly simple. An important part of my income had been derived from the sale of cadavers to medical colleges, which never before had been so well supplied, and which, in added recognition of my services to science, had all bestowed upon me diplomas, degrees, and fellowships without number. But their demand for cadavers was unequal to my supply. By even the most prodigal extravagances, they could not consume the one half of the products of my skill as a physician. As to the rest, I had owned and operated the most extensive and thoroughly appointed soap-works in all the country. The excellence of my toilet homiline was attested by certificates from scores of the saintliest theologians, and I had one in autograph from Badalina Fatti, the most famous living soprano. The Middle Toe of the Right Foot Chapter 1 It is well known that the old Manton house is haunted. In all the rural district near about, and even in the town of Marshall a mile away, not one person of unbiased mind entertains a doubt of it. Incredulity is confined to those opinionated persons who will be called cranks as soon as the useful word shall have penetrated the intellectual domain 
of the martial advance. The evidence that the house is haunted is of two kinds. The testimony of disinterested witnesses, who have had ocular proof, and that of the house itself. The former may be disregarded and ruled out on any of the various grounds of objection which may be urged against it by the ingenious. But facts within the observation of all are material and controlling. In the first place, the Manton House has been unoccupied by mortals for more than ten years, and with its outbuildings is slowly falling into decay, a circumstance which, in itself, the judicious will hardly venture to ignore. It stands a little way off the loneliest reach of the Marshall and Harriston Road, in an opening which was once a farm, and is still disfigured with strips of rotting fence and half-covered with brambles overrunning a stony and sterile soil, long unacquainted with the plough. The house itself is in tolerably good condition, though badly weather-stained and in dire need of attention from a glazier, the smaller male population of the region having attested in the manner of its kind its disapproval of dwelling without dwellers. It is two stories in height, nearly square, its front pierced by a single doorway, flanked on each side by a window, boarded up to the very top. Corresponding windows above, not protected, serve to admit light and rain to the rooms of the upper floor. Grass and weeds grow pretty rankly all about, and a few shade trees, somewhat the worse for wind, and leaning all in one direction, seem to be making a concerted effort to run away. In short, as the Marshalltown humorist explained in the columns of the advance, the proposition that the Manton House is badly haunted is the only logical conclusion from the premises. The fact that, in this dwelling, Mr. Manton thought it expedient one night some ten years ago to rise and cut the throats of his wife and two small children, removing at once to another part of the country, has no doubt done its share in directing public attention to the fitness of the place for supernatural phenomena. To this house, one summer evening, came four men in a wagon. Three of them promptly alighted, and the one who had been driving hitched the team to the only remaining post of what had been a fence. The fourth remained seated in the wagon. Come, said one of his companions, approaching him, while the others moved away in the direction of the dwelling. This is the place. The man addressed did not move. By God! he said harshly. This is a trick, and it looks to me as if you were in it. Perhaps I am, the other said, looking him straight in the face, and speaking in a tone which had something of contempt in it. You will remember, however, that the choice of place was with your own assent left to the other side. Of course, if you are afraid of spooks, I am afraid of nothing, the man interrupted with another oath and sprang to the ground. The two then joined the others at the door, which one of them had already opened with some difficulty, caused by rust of lock and hinge. All entered. Inside it was dark, but the man who had unlocked the door produced a candle and matches, and made a light. Then he unlocked a door on their right as they stood in the passage. This gave them entrance to a large, square room, 
but the candle but dimly lighted. The floor had a thick carpeting of dust, which partly muffled their footfalls. Cobwebs were in the angles of the walls and depended from the ceilings like strips of rotting lace, making undulatory movements in the disturbed air. The room had two windows in adjoining sides, but from neither could anything be seen except the rough inner surfaces of boards a few inches from the glass. There was no fireplace, no furniture. There was nothing. Besides the cobwebs and the dust, the four men were the only objects there which were not a part of the structure. Strange enough, they looked in the yellow light of the candle. The one who had so reluctantly alighted was especially spectacular. He might have been called sensational. He was of middle age, heavily built, deep-chested and broad-shouldered. Looking at his figure, one would have said that he had a giant's strength. At his features, that he would use it like a giant. He was clean-shaven, his hair rather closely cropped and gray. His low forehead was seamed with wrinkles above the eyes, and over the nose these became vertical. The heavy black brows followed the same law, saved from meeting only by an upward turn at what would otherwise have been the point of contact. Deeply sunken beneath these, glowed in the obscure light, a pair of eyes, of uncertain color, but obviously enough, too small. There was something forbidding in their expression, which was not bettered by the cruel mouth and wide jaw. The nose was well enough, as noses go. One does not expect much of noses. All that was sinister in the man's face seemed accentuated by an unnatural pallor. He appeared altogether bloodless. The appearance of the other men was sufficiently commonplace— they were such persons as one meets and forgets that he met. All were younger than the man described, between whom and the eldest of the others who stood apart, there was apparently no kindly feeling. They avoided looking at each other. Gentlemen, said the man holding the candle and keys, I believe everything is right. Are you ready, Mr. Rosser? The man standing apart from the group bowed and smiled. And you, Mr. Grossmith? The heavy man bowed and scowled. You will be pleased to remove your outer clothing. Their hats, coats, waistcoats, and neckwear were soon removed and thrown outside the door, in the passage. The man with the candle now nodded, and the fourth man, who had urged Grossmith to leave the wagon, produced from the pocket of his overcoat two long, murderous-looking bowie knives, which he drew now from their leather scabbards. They are exactly alike, he said, presenting one to each of the two principals, for by this time the dullest observer would have understood the nature of this meeting. It was to be a duel to the death. Each combatant took a knife, examined it critically near the candle, and tested the strength of blade and handle across his lifted knee. Their persons were then searched in turn, each by the second of the other, if it is agreeable to you, Mr. Grossmith, said the man holding the light, you will place yourself in that corner. He indicated the angle of the room farthest from the door, whither Grossmith retired, his second parting from him with a grasp of the hand, which had nothing of cordiality in it. In the angle nearest the door, Mr. Rosser stationed himself, and after a whispered consultation, his second left him.
joining the other near the door. At that moment the candle was suddenly extinguished, leaving all in profound darkness. This may have been done by a draft from the open door. Whatever the cause, the effect was startling. "'Gentlemen,' said a voice, which sounded strangely unfamiliar in the altered condition affecting the relations of the senses. "'Gentlemen, you will not move until you hear the closing of the outer door.' A sound of trampling ensued, then the closing of the inner door, and finally the outer one closed, with a concussion which shook the entire building. A few minutes afterward, a belated farmer's boy met a light wagon, which was being driven furiously toward the town of Marshall. He declared that behind the two figures on the front seat stood a third, with its hands upon the bowed shoulders of the others, who appeared to struggle vainly to free themselves from its grasp. This figure, unlike the others, was clad in white, and had undoubtedly boarded the wagon as it passed the haunted house. As the lad could boast a considerable former experience with the supernatural thereabouts, his word had the weight justly due to the testimony of an expert. The story, in connection with the next day's events, eventually appeared in the advance, with some slight literary embellishments, and a concluding intimation that the gentleman referred to would be allowed the use of the paper's columns for their version of the night's adventure. But the privilege remained without a claimant. Chapter 2 The events that led up to this duel in the dark were simple enough. One evening, three young men of the town of Marshall were sitting in a quiet corner of the porch of the village hotel, smoking and discussing matters as three educated young men of a southern village would naturally find interesting. Their names were King, Satcher, and Rosser. At a little distance, within easy hearing, but taking no part in the conversation, sat a fourth. He was a stranger to the others. They merely knew that on his arrival by the stagecoach that afternoon, he had written in the hotel register the name Robert Grossmith. He had not been observed to speak to anyone except the hotel clerk. He seemed indeed singularly fond of his own company, or as the personnel of the advance expressed it, grossly addicted to evil associations. But then it should be said in justice to the stranger that the personnel was himself of a too convivial disposition fairly to judge one differently gifted, and had, moreover, experienced a slight rebuff in an effort to an interview. "'I hate any kind of deformity in a woman,' said King, "'whether natural or acquired. "'I have a theory that any physical defect "'has its correlative mental and moral defect.' "'I infer, then,' said Rosser gravely, "'that a lady lacking the moral advantage of a nose "'would find the struggle to become Mrs. King an arduous enterprise.' "'Of course you may put it that way,' was the reply. "'But seriously, I once threw over a most charming girl "'on learning quite accidentally that she had suffered amputation of a toe. "'My conduct was brutal, if you like. "'But if I had married that girl, "'I should have been miserable for life and should have made her so. "'Whereas,' said Sancher with a light laugh, "'by marrying a gentleman of more liberal views,' She escaped with a parted throat, 
Ah, you know to whom I refer. Yes, she married Manton. But I don't know about his liberality. I'm not sure, but he cut her throat because he discovered that she lacked that excellent thing in a woman, the middle toe of the right foot. Look at that chap, said Rosser in a low voice, his eyes fixed upon the stranger. That chap was obviously listening intently to the conversation. Damn his impudence, muttered King. What ought we to do? That's an easy one, Rosser replied, rising. Sir, he continued, addressing the stranger, I think it would be better if you would remove your chair to the other end of the veranda. The presence of gentlemen is evidently an unfamiliar situation to you. The man sprang to his feet and strode forward with clenched hands, his face white with rage. All were now standing. Sancher stepped between the belligerents. You are hasty and unjust, he said to Rosser. This gentleman has done nothing to deserve such language. But Rosser would not withdraw a word. By the custom of the country and the time, there could be but one outcome to the quarrel. I demand the satisfaction due to a gentleman, said the stranger, who had become more calm. I have not an acquaintance in this region. Perhaps you, sir, bowing to Sancher, will be kind enough to represent me in this matter. Sancher accepted the trust, somewhat reluctantly, it must be confessed, for the man's appearance and manner were not at all to his liking. King, who during the colloquy had hardly removed his eyes from the stranger's face and had not spoken a word, consented with a nod to act for Rosser, and the upshot of it was that, the principals having retired, a meeting was arranged for the next evening. The nature of the arrangements has been already disclosed. The duel with knives in a dark room was once a commoner feature of southwestern life than it is likely to be again. How thin the veneering of chivalry covered the essential brutality of the code under which such encounters were possible, we shall see. Chapter 3 In the blaze of a midsummer noonday, the old Manton house was hardly true to its traditions. It was of the earth, earthy. The sunshine caressed it warmly and affectionately, with evident disregard of its bad reputation. The grass greening all the expanse in its front seemed to grow not rankly, but with a natural and joyous exuberance, and the weeds blossomed quite like plants. Full of charming lights and shadows and populous with pleasant-voiced birds, the neglected shade-trees no longer struggled to run away, but bent reverently beneath their burdens of sun and song. Even in the glassless upper windows was an expression of peace and contentment, due to the light within. Over the stony fields the visible heat danced with the lively tremor incompatible with the gravity which is an attribute of the supernatural. Such was the aspect under which the place presented itself to Sheriff Adams, and two other men, who had come out from Marshall to look at it. One of these men was Mr. King, the sheriff's deputy. The other, whose name was Brewer, was a brother of the late Mrs. Manton. Under a beneficent law of the state, relating to property, which has been for a certain period abandoned by an owner whose residence cannot be ascertained, 
The sheriff was legal custodian of the Manton farm and appurtenances thereto belonging. His present visit was in mere perfunctory compliance with some order of a court in which Mr. Brewer had an action to get possession of the property as heir to his deceased sister. By mere coincidence, the visit was made on the day after the night that Deputy King had unlocked the house for another and very different purpose. His presence now was not of his own choosing. He had been ordered to accompany his superior, and at the moment could think of nothing more prudent than simulated alacrity in obedience to the command. Carelessly opening the front door, which to his surprise was not locked, the sheriff was amazed to see, lying on the floor of the passage into which it opened, a confused heap of men's apparel. Examination showed it to consist of two hats and the same number of coats, waistcoats, and scarves, all in a remarkably good state of preservation, albeit somewhat defiled by the dust in which they lay. Mr. Brewer was equally astonished, but Mr. King's emotion is not of record. With a new and lively interest in his own actions, the sheriff now unlatched and pushed open a door on the right, and the three entered. The room was apparently vacant. No. As their eyes became accustomed to the dimmer light, something was visible in the farthest angle of the wall. It was a human figure, that of a man crouching close in the corner. Something in the attitude made the intruders halt when they had barely passed the threshold. The figure more and more clearly defined itself. The man was upon one knee, his back in the angle of the wall, his shoulders elevated to the level of his ears, his hands before his face, palms outward, the fingers spread and crooked like claws. The white face, turned upward on the retracted neck, had an expression of unutterable fright. The mouth half open, the eyes incredibly expanded. He was stone dead. Yet with the exception of a bowie knife, which had evidently fallen from his own hand, not another object was in the room. In thick dust that covered the floor were some confused footprints near the door and along the wall through which it opened. Along one of the adjoining walls, too, past the boarded-up windows, was the trail made by the man himself in reaching his corner. Instinctively in approaching the body, the three men followed that trail. The sheriff grasped one of the outthrown arms. It was as rigid as iron, and the application of a gentle force rocked the entire body without altering the relation of its parts. Brewer, pale with excitement, gazed intently into the distorted face. God a mercy, he suddenly cried. It is Manton. You are right, said King, with an evident attempt at calmness. I knew Manton. He then wore a full beard and his hair long, but this is he. He might have added, I recognized him when he challenged Rosser. I told Rosser and Sancher who he was before we played him this horrible trick. When Rosser left this dark room at our heels, forgetting his outer clothing in the excitement, and driving away with us in his shirt-sleeves, all through the discreditable proceedings we knew whom we were dealing with, murderer and coward that he was. 
but nothing of this did Mr. King say. With his better light, he was trying to penetrate the mystery of the man's death. That he had not once moved from the corner where he had been stationed. That his posture was that of neither attack nor defense. That he had dropped his weapon. That he had obviously perished of sheer horror of something that he saw. These were circumstances which Mr. King's disturbed intelligence could not rightly comprehend. Groping in intellectual darkness for a clue to his maze of doubt, his gaze, directed mechanically downward in the way of one who ponders momentous matters, fell upon something which, there, in the light of day, and in the presence of living companions, affected him with terror. In the dust of years that lay thick upon the floor, leading from the door by which they had entered, straight across the room, to within a yard of Manton's crouching corpse, were three parallel lines of footprints, light but definite impressions of bare feet, the outer ones those of small children, the inner a woman's. From the point at which they ended, they did not return. They pointed all one way. Brewer, who had observed them at the same moment, was leaning forward in an attitude of rapt attention, horribly pale. Look at that, he cried, pointing with both hands at the nearest print of the woman's right foot, where she had apparently stopped and stood. The middle toe is missing. It was Gertrude, Gertrude was the late Mrs. Manton, sister to Mr. Brewer. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The City of the Gone Away and the Middle Toe of the Right Foot by Ambrose Bierce. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.